Hey guys, welcome into another edition of the Reed Foster Podcast. Got a great show for you today. We're going to be talking about the impact of the NFL draft, whether Becky Hammond should get an NBA coaching job, the NBA playoffs continuing, and a whole lot more. Uh, all coming up here on the Reed Foster Podcast. So last week, Jason Witten retired and he is going to be replacing John Gruden in the Monday Night Football booth. Um... And as soon as it happened, I'm not surprised. I mean, if you played for the Dallas Cowboys and you're white, you're going to get a broadcasting job somewhere. That's, that's just the rules. Um, and as soon as it happened, I, I went on Twitter and I said that Jason Witten is not a Hall of Famer. And anytime you say that, people turn it into this thing where if you say someone isn't a Hall of Famer, it's like you're, you're a hater. It's like you're saying that Jason Witten is garbage. And that's not what I'm saying. Jason Witten isn't garbage. He was a great player. You'd love to have him on your team. But he never struck fear into the opposing team's heart the way other tight ends have in this era. Tony Gonzalez, Gronk, Antonio Gates, even guys like Jimmy Graham, Greg Olson, Travis Kelsey, at various points have kept defensive coordinators up at night. That hasn't been the that was never the case with Jason Witten. Even at his peak, he was never terrifying opposing defensive coordinators. And if you just look at the counting stats, all the counting stats make Jason Witten seem like he's a lock for the Hall. But, you know, you look at it, he's fourth all-time in receptions. That's cool, but you have to keep in mind, we're at a crossroads of how football is played. Receivers from this era have their numbers ridiculously inflated relative to the history because let's face it they're straight up playing a different sport you know the NFL has been around in various forms since the 1940s maybe earlier I'm sorry earlier than that I think actually um and 32 of the top 50 players all time in receptions played a majority of their career in the 2000s. That's not a coincidence. And so right now, the guys that are retiring in the 2010s are artificially having their numbers inflated relative to history because there hasn't been enough players in this this era for them to compare to. And obviously, they're playing a different sport, so their numbers are going to look more favorable compared to guys guys from the past like, uh, what do you call it, John Stallworth or Lynn Swan. Um... And I mean, it's what's going to happen when this era of NBA players start retiring. Their numbers from three in terms of volume and efficiency will look totally foreign compared to everyone from bygone eras outside of your Larry Birds and your Reggie Millers. Donovan Mitchell just set the record for the most threes for a rookie ever. And he's not even that good of a three-point shooter. 34%, he's okay. But that's the game, that's the game now in the NBA. It's shooting threes. So obviously anyone who's playing now is going to take more and is going to shoot them more effectively than someone from 1995. And when we evaluate these players historically, we have to evaluate them under that context. Uh, and we had, So we just have to keep it in mind. Also the problem with Witten is that his numbers have been inflated by being so durable. Consider this. He and Antonio Gates both have played 15 years. 
Gates started 189 games in his career so far. Witten started 229. That's 40 more games from Witten, despite playing the same number of years. Now you look at it, Witten has 225 more career receptions than Gates. But, if you look at their numbers per start, it's virtually identical for Witten and Gates at 5. And Gates averaged more yards per start. Durability is highly valuable. But what does it say? What do you call it? But it also is largely a product of luck, not skill. So yeah, I mean, it's a boon to his Hall of Fame candidacy. But what does it say when the first traits you bring up to describe Jason Witten as a player are durable and consistent and reliable? That makes him sound like a Honda Civic. A Civic's a good car, but it's not a Bentley. And you know, I, I think that if there's any doubt that Witten was going to make the Hall of Fame, then him joining Monday Night Football just ended any debate. Because now those 15 years of playing on the Cowboys and playing in virtually every every 4 o'clock window on Sunday on Fox, that exposure is now going to be even more intensified with his presence on Monday Night Football. You could go ahead and get in the gold jacket now. He is guaranteed to make it. Even if I personally disagree and think it's going to water down the hall in the same way that Craig Biggio watered down the Baseball Hall of Fame. Uh, but I don't, I don't think it's going to... I think this is going to be the beginning of a trend for tight ends to join the broadcast booth. You know, I, I don't know why it's like this, but there's a lot of great tight ends now that are white. Greg Olson is going to be in the broadcast booth. He interviewed for Monday Night Football uh, this offseason. Whenever he retires, Greg Olson definitely going to be in the broadcast booth. Travis Kelsey, Rob Gronkowski, those guys would make excellent additions to the broadcast booth. They're both handsome, very exuberant, very fun personalities, and again, they're white. Not everyone loves the NFL draft. I get that. I personally do. Um, but it, it makes for weird conversation. Because in a, you know, with such a short attention span, we're not really equipped to talk about the draft in the ways that we should. If we really wanted to be effective about things, the way we would discuss drafts is that we would talk about Right now, we'd be spending this time talking about the draft from 2015, three years ago. Because at this point, we have a chance to actually properly evaluate everyone's draft. Right now, we don't know. We know for a fact that the draft is a crapshoot. Because even if a player, everything, he lands in the perfect situation. He is in a great with a great coach has the right role for him, everything is perfect. You could also tear your ACL in minicamp just like, uh, what, what do you call it, just like Dante Fowler did, the number three overall pick for the Jaguars a few years back. You just, you never know. And it's difficult because you want to evaluate how, you want to evaluate this season and you want to evaluate the draft. How much will it impact this year? I don't know. 
maybe not a whole lot, but we know that's going to affect it at least somewhat. You know, I don't think, I think it's pretty safe to say that if the Saints didn't have an incredible draft class last year, they weren't going to be winning the NFC South. Their jump to a top 10 defense was spurred in large part because of a great draft featuring guys like Marshawn Lattimore, the cornerback. Their offense was boosted by third-round pick Alvin Kamara. So the draft is going to play a role this season. And, you know, because of that, I'd say like my favorite drafts usually are ones from good teams. Because generally, their rosters are set up to where rookies aren't asked to come in and be everything. I like Calvin Ridley more that he was drafted by the Falcons than I would have if he were taken by the Arizona Cardinals. Because he's not going to be expected to be the number one receiver off cuff. You know, Ridley playing next to Julio Jones, that changes the equation quite a bit. And that's why I love the Eagles and Jaguars drafts. Not a coincidence that they are, in my opinion, the best teams in their respective conference. You look at the Eagles. They take their first pick they use on Dallas Goddard, a tight end whose most frequent comparison was Zach Ertz. And now Goddard is going to be lining up in two tight end sets with (gasps) Zach Ertz. With Trey Burton gone, he fills a need too. Then the Eagles, with their fourth round pick, took Josh Sweat. An edge that an edge that fell because he's got long-term health concerns. The doctor said that he's got bone on bone in his knee where there should be cartilage, which is a healthy reminder that professional football players are not rational people. Sweat those durability concerns are going to be eased quite a bit because he's going to be the Eagles' fifth edge rusher this year. He's going to have a chance to grow into being a pro and use his elite athleticism to affect the game. Then you look at the Jaguars. In the first round, they took Taven Bryant, a raw defensive tackle that needs to be refined a bit. But he has a chance to be extremely disruptive. He'll have that opportunity to... He's going to have the opportunity to grow into himself and develop his skills as the fourth man in the inside rotation in Jacksonville before he's asked to succeed Malik Jackson there. Second round pick was DJ Chark, the wide receiver that lit up the combine with a 4-3-4 40-yard dash. All he's going to be asked to do this year is run go routes and take the top off the defense. They've got a pretty good receiving core outside of him. So, you know, the definition of success for DJ Chark this year If he has 20 catches for 300 yards and three touchdowns, that's a and he is an effective decoy for Jacksonville, then he was a great pick for them. Third round pick, Ronnie Harrison. He could have started at safety for a number of teams. But because the Jaguars are so deep, he's going to be a backup for them. And he's going to increase their flexibility since he can contribute in the box as a third linebacker at times next to Miles Jack and Telvin Smith. If Ronnie Harrison were taken in the second round by the Carolina Panthers and they're saying, we need you to come in and be our starting safety and be a star immediately, I wouldn't like that pick nearly as much. But context matters. And it's not a coincidence. You know, that's why you see a lot of the same teams being good year after year. The Steelers are 
constantly able to find quality wide receivers because they have a great organization, very stable. They have a Hall of Fame quarterback in Ben Roethlisberger, and typically they have great wide receivers to slot them next to. Antonio Brown, you know, you can. They drafted James Washington this year in the second round. He's going to be going. He's going to be lining up next to Antonio Brown and Juju Smith-Schuster, two fantastic wide receivers. When Brown was coming up as a sixth-round pick out of Central Michigan, it was him and Emmanuel Sanders being asked to be the third and fourth wide receivers because they already had Heinz Ward and Santonio Holmes. All of this stuff matters. I do want to note that while we can't properly evaluate drafts until a few years out, I'm going to go ahead and plant my flag in the sand. I don't know. I don't think that's the right phrase, but whatever. I'm going to go ahead and say I think the Bills may have had the single worst draft of all time. That sounds like hyperbole, but consider this. Before the draft, they had here are the assets they had. They had the number 12, sorry, they had the yeah, no, that's right. They had the number 21 and number 22 overall picks in the in the draft. So two first round picks. They had a quality starting quarterback in Tyrod Taylor on an affordable contract and a quality left tackle in Cordy Glenn. They used all of that to trade up for Josh Allen, the quarterback, and Tremaine Edmonds, the linebacker. The two prospects with the most bust potential of the top 20. Really, of guys taken in the first round, Allen and Edmonds have the biggest bust potential of all of them. And the Bills not only took them, but they traded up to take both. They traded up using draft capital acquired by trading Tyrod Taylor to the Browns, by trading Cordy Glenn to the Bengals. You know, guys you could upgrade at, but generally in the NFL, you just want good enough at left tackle and quarterback. The Bills had that and they got greedy. I mean, you look at the Cincinnati Bengals, they traded, they were willing to move back 10 slots in the first round for Cordy Glenn because they let Andrew Whitworth go thinking they had a plan to replace him and it didn't work out. And it damaged the, and it sent their entire season last year into a downspin. Now they're desperate and they're taking Cordy, Cordy Glenn. They're excited to have him. And you know who might have liked to have a quality left tackle? Josh Allen, your rookie quarterback. You know, even if you're gonna even if you're gonna move up and decide to move on from Tyrod Taylor, I bet your rookie quarterback would like to have a decent left tackle protecting his blind side. That's just me. You know, the best coaches in the NFL take the players they have and build the system around them. When building the roster, their primary focus is getting good players and sorting it out later. The worst coaches in the NFL are rigid with their system. We need this exact player or the system fails. And if that's your system, it sucks. Can anyone can anyone at all describe Bill Belichick's system? Hmm. You can't. Because he doesn't have a system. His system is get good players at the best value he possibly can and build the system around that. Buffalo decided it needed like 
someone like Josh Allen as their quarterback, even though Tyrod Taylor proven to be serviceable, they could have taken those two first-round picks and used them on players to build around Tyrod Taylor. He could, they could have used that to build up the defense that's got some holes. I mean, there's a lot of places on this roster that could be upgraded. I know they made the playoffs last year, but this wasn't a playoff roster. And I think anyone who pays close attention would tell you that. And it's a great story that they made the playoffs, but that's not that's not where this team is. And yet they're giving away assets, valuable assets. And I wouldn't even say they got great value for it. I mean, Tyrod Taylor is a quality starting quarterback and you got a third round pick for him? Cordy Glenn is a quality starting left tackle. There's not a whole lot of those in the league. And you were only able to move up 10 spots in the first round for that? I just don't like it at all. Considering, so yeah, I mean, considering what they had entering the draft and how they decided to use it, I think very good chance, worst draft ever. And when Brandon Bean and Sean McDermott eventually lose their jobs, it's going to be because of that. Quickly want to touch on the Kentucky Derby. Uh, happened on Saturday. I, I just want to get this out there. I think the Derby is highly overrated. The tradition behind it is just rich white people getting drunk in fancy hats together. And look, I mean, you can say the tradition of most things is overrated and boil it down to something silly and snarky like that. But generally, there's other stuff to bring you in. The tradition of the Masters can be pretty obnoxious at times. Oh, they're not fans, they're patrons. Oh, shucks. Did you know that the pimento cheese sandwich at Augusta is just a dollar? <laughs> How wacky is that? <laughs> but it doesn't matter because the course is incredible and the golf is always exciting. Horse racing on its own is fine, but it's not drawing me in as appointment television. And that's what the Kentucky Derby is branded as. I mean, people talk about it like it's one of the five or ten best sporting events in America, and it's just not in 2018. The main event is literally lasts less than two minutes. I mean, there's an undercard, but I, mean, I don't care about those horses. And, you know, I'm not going to say I'm, I'm above horse racing, because drinking and mindlessly gambling on things is plenty of fun. I'd go to the horse track if one was near me. But it also, I think it should be said, the sport's undeniably cruel to the horses. They're forced to exert themselves beyond what's reasonable, and a lot of them literally die on the racetrack. You know, I know there's a lot of cruel sports involving humans, but at least the football players and UFC fighters that are trading on their bodies have a choice in the matter. Racehorses are only brought into this world for one thing. And so, I don't know. It just it just doesn't feel right to me. Story came out that Spurs San Antonio Spurs assistant Becky Hammond, the first NBA assistant coach ever that's a female, is going to be interviewing for the open position of Milwaukee Bucks head coaching job. And there's been a little bit of a debate back and forth. 
is Becky Hammond, who has been an assistant coach and a second line assistant for the Spurs for just four years. Is she qualified enough for the job? And I question, and I go back, I go back and forth in this, but my question on that is, does it matter? Because I agree, like on the surface, you compare Becky Hammond's qualifications to the average NBA coach that gets hired. She's not necessarily qualified based on that standard. I think it's absolutely fair to question whether her qualifications merit being hired as an NBA coach. At this level, everybody deserves scrutiny. You don't get a pass. The issue here becomes when people continuously harp on the qualified thing when when it's clearly being used as a smokescreen for thinking that a woman shouldn't have a man's job. I've got no idea how many years of being an assistant NBA assistant coach you need, quote unquote, to be a head coach. I've got no idea how many years of being a, quote unquote, top line assistant you need. You know, by top line, I mean there were a couple of guys, Etor, Etor, I think, Messina and James Borrego, who are above Hammond on the Spurs coaching staff. I think she's the third assistant in the in the pecking order. I don't know how you qualify that. Um, but, I, you know, I got no, many, no idea how many years of being a top-line assistant you need. Because you know, the X's and O's of basketball they aren't necessarily that complex. You need to spend years to get inundated with it all. Because I'm, I'm not saying that I'm, I'm, I'm Captain X and O with the basketball. I'm not. Yeah, but I've got no doubt that Hammond has a grasp of that stuff. Generally, the technical stuff takes a backseat to one fundamental question: Can you get through to the players? And some of that is running plays that gets everyone involved, but generally, it's just a psychological thing. Can you get through to the players and motivate them? Tyron Lewis, 38 years old when he got the Cavs job. He was able to leverage his relative youth and relatability into trust from his players, and that worked for him. He parlayed that into a championship in 2016. I don't know Hammond personally, so I can't answer if she's got the ability to get through to players. But if she doesn't now, she likely never will. If she does then she deserves a shot at being a head coach. And I think it's worth noting when we're discussing qualifications. A couple of years ago, there was a a pretty big job in our government that came open. And, you know, there are a lot of candidates, but it primarily boiled down to two candidates, one female and one male. And the female was more quote-unquote qualified. Guess what? Turned out that didn't matter too much when the decision was made. Qualified's what you make it out to be. Um, you know, I, I, Michelle Obama had a, did a speech yesterday and I, I, I didn't hear the context of where the quote came from, but I'm pretty sure it wasn't related to this. Uh, but she was talking about, she said, quote, I wish that girls could fail as bad as men do and be okay. Because let me tell you, watching men fail up, it is frustrating. It's frustrating to see a lot of men blow it and win. 
And we hold ourselves to these crazy, crazy standards. And that's totally fair. And when you consider that quote in the context of Becky Hammond, when guys who have failed as NBA coaches, and I, I'm a firm believer in second chances, David Fisdale, Mark Jackson, I think they could have a, a lot of success in a second stint as a head coach. But not everyone deserves a second chance. Neither the Van Gundy brothers deserve it. Steve Clifford seems like a nice guy. Didn't do a great job with the Hornets. He failed. He shouldn't get a second job as a head coach. But he's going to continue failing up. And I, I don't think necessarily that guys like that getting more opportunities is directly related to sexism. But it is rooted from the same place of stagnant thinking. Um, I will say... I do hope for the sake of Hammond and the future and for future women in the profession that she doesn't get hired too soon or in a bad situation. If that's possible, I don't know if it's possible to get hired too soon because fair or not, her success will play a large part in getting the next female coach hired. If Becky Hammond flames out and people are going to use that, Hoist that up as an example for why women can't be successful as NBA coaches. And it's not going to be fair, but we have to understand that's the reality of what's going to happen. Before we go, wanted to touch on some NBA playoff stuff. Specifically, I think wanted to touch on the Philly-Boston series, which I think has been highly captivating. Um... A series that a lot of us thought Philly was going to win, myself included. I had Philly in six. Now is Boston up 3 nothing, And, you know, we see in the playoffs, the fatal flaws of your superstars rise to the surface. And that's what happened. That's what's happened with the Sixers. Ben Simmons can't shoot. And Joel, and Joel Embiid has crappy conditioning because he's frequently hurt. And he's still so new to basketball that he's limited as a passer and playmaker. These are issues, of course, that can be sanded down over time. But when I say time, I mean over the course of one to three years. For Philly to come back, those problems need to be resolved, I don't know, now-ish. And, you know, it wouldn't surprise me to see the Sixers push this series to seven since they'll be favored in both home games, if, if we do get to a Game 6. And they already nearly won Game 2 on the road, so stealing Game 5 in Boston wouldn't be that crazy to me. But, you know, I, I would say I think both series in the East feel like they should at least be 2-1 instead of 3-0. But Toronto and Philly have had some awful luck, some poor late-game execution, and... Now they find themselves in the 3-0 holes and the series virtually over. And sometimes that's just how things go. We like to talk about how the NFL playoffs, because it's one game and you're out, luck decides everything. But it affects things in the seven-game series too. You know, at first, seven-game series is a lot more fair than one game and you're done, but it's still a lot less than a whole season. And it still opens itself for a little bit of volatility and a little bit of variance. Um, but I, I also say, from the Boston side of things, it's been interesting to see the praise levied upon Brad Stevens. 
There was a Twitter poll yesterday I saw that asked people if they were starting a team, would they rather have Stevens or any player in the world? 34% of people chose Stevens. Now, I pretty, pretty fucking absurd since the NBA is a player's league. There's a reason why LeBron has made seven straight finals with three different coaches. I also think we're seriously underrating the talent of this Boston team. Even with Kyrie and Gordon Hayward gone, they're more talented this year than last year. With how Terry Rozier, a.k.a. Scary Terry, has performed this postseason, he and Isaiah Thomas are close to a wash. And now they also have Jason Tatum, who has been incredible. And late in Game 3, anytime things got tight for Boston, they essentially said to Tatum, here's the ball, go make something happen. And more often than not, that's exactly what he did. He didn't deserve Rookie of the Year with how incredible Donovan Mitchell and Simmons were this season, but he's been in a revelation. He's already got a few moves he can go to, which you don't expect from someone that young, and he's had a great feel for how to use his body to create space. Of course, it helps that his wingspan resembles that of a peregrine falcon. All that being said, it's hard to disagree with any of the accolades we assign to Stevens. Watching the Celtics with Brad Stevens feels eerily similar like watching another Boston coach. It feels eerily similar to watching the Patriots with Bill Belichick. Because when we talk about the brilliance of Belichick and the brilliance of Brad Stevens, it's not necessarily that everything the Celtics do is brilliant, but it's more so that nothing they do ever seems idiotic. And eventually, inevitably, the other team is going to do something idiotic and Boston will take advantage. Just like the Patriots. The Patriots don't beat themselves. They let you beat your they let you beat yourself, and that's how they win. And when you basically don't make any mistakes, your margin for error grows dramatically. I know this is some high-level analysis. You know, don't make mistakes and it helps. But I think we focus so much on the great plays and we don't focus enough on the guys that don't make the bad plays. And that's why a guy like Al Horford is so underrated. Because he always makes the right play. He doesn't always look flashy. He doesn't always look spectacular. But he's almost never in the wrong spot. And that counts for something. And right now, what it counts for is Boston being up 3-0 and being close to punching their ticket to the conference finals for a second consecutive year.